0: You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Banzai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley, and with me today is my good friend and Make It podcast co-host, Nicholas Bugs. Hello, hello, Chris here with another episode of the Make It podcast, and this is an indie talk week, and that means I'm here with my good friend and co-founder Nicholas Bugs. Nick, say hello. What's up, folks? <laughs> was that, was that like a fake enthusiasm for this indie talk? What was that? No,
1: man, you gotta get hyped up for these conversations, man. Okay, like, I'll admit today was a long. You know, and my body is tired.
0: But <laughs> this is indie talk. You know, so you gotta step it up, man. <laughs> have you ever thought about getting one of those Theraguns?
1: I have. Um, but I've been really happy with the whole lacrosse ball
0: thing. So like now explain to the fun. audience what a lacrosse ball is. Uh, what it's lacrosse ball. So, the, so, yeah. so you're talking about the literal lacrosse. Well, for those people that don't play lacrosse or know what it is across this globe that listen to this, to this podcast, lacrosse, uh, do you want to explain lacrosse and then yeah, say I'm what the ball is?
1: Lacrosse. I'll explain the ball though. So yeah, the lacrosse ball is a very, it's like, it's a heavy bouncy ball. It's the size of a baseball. Um, And it's great for what you call myofascial release. So you put this ball on a spot that's really, really tight and you can either lay on it or you can push it up against a wall or whatever, but you find a spot that's tight and you can just lay on it, you know, for, you know, about a minute, maybe even two, depending on how tight that thing is, man. And it'll take (laughs) the knot out. So instead of doing the whole percussive massage with a Theragun, you know, that thing's beating on you, you just use the massage. You just take the lacrosse
0: ball and you sit. You just relax. It sounds like you could whisper that to your significant other, just right in your ear, baby, I'm going to need that myofascial release. And then... <laughs> So, <laughs> <It's like, laughs> it 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 has it has a it has a it has a uh, sexual nature to it, even though it's not sexual at all. I don't know why it's it's a it's a, myof-
1: <laughs> a myofacial release. Yeah, I went to a chiropractor. Was it last year? I think it was. And yeah, it's funny because she got on my back. You know, like clasmed up she on me. She gave you a
0: myofascial release. <laughs> oh, dude, exactly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but she hit me with that Theragun, man. And it was funny because, you know, I had a like a major injury. And, you know, she hit me with this Theragun and, and I feel it. And she's like, does this hurt? I'm like, no, it kind of tickles. She's like, It tickles? It's like, yeah, it tickles. She's like, it was the first time I've heard that. I'm like, is it not doing what it's supposed to do? I just, I laid there and
0: kept going and I was like, okay, I mean, I don't. Is it cheating if someone else gives you a myofascial res- release? <laughs> Listen to you. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. You are
1: myofascial, yeah, myofascial release, but it's just. I'm glad those tickle you so much. Yeah, I'm good with the with the lacrosse ball, dude. I'm I'm golden. All
0: right, well, on to some indie film talk, Nick. It this has been a busy couple of weeks. There is a lot going on. Uh, One thing we want to do is some housekeeping on what we talked about last time. Which was tenant and your theory that the tenant numbers had been inflated. At the time of our recording, you had said that tenant was at about two hundred and eight million dollars, I believe, uh, globally. But Variety reported they they had just hit one hundred and seventy eight million globally, like a week ago. Now they're at two hundred and eighty million, and you just wonder. You're just tracking the numbers and trying to figure it out, but. The big news, I guess, about it is is that they wanted more than that. <laughs> that, that they considered this a flop. I don't know how you consider it a flop, Nick, but I guess they are saying, look, the U.S. box office was really soft and they've only made $41 million in four weeks. Usually a movie will run for four to six weeks uh, in, in the major theaters. I don't know what's competing with Tenet. Um, and it's got people a little bit, yeah, COVID, (laughs) COVID, that's right. COVID's competing with tenant. And I think COVID, I don't know if COVID's winning. I mean, this is, is 280 million worldwide losing to COVID.
1: I think it's hilarious because, you know, I'm reading, uh, was it a Hollywood reporter and it says, you know, box office tenant limps to $41 million in the U S but nears 300 million globally. Like why, why do we care? You know, like, well, I'll be curious a forty one million if it's making $300 milli. You know, what I'm saying, and it's not. I mean, how long has it been out? Four
0: weeks, right? And you made three hundred million dollars. Well, they spent so much money on the movie. I think, I think they have to make a billion. I think they well, have to get to a billion to to make their money back or, or to feel good about the profit. I think they can my, make their money. I think they will make their money back. As a matter of fact, four weeks, dude. Yeah. And I think they're doing. I think they're doing great. I think the other concern is: look, what is the theater going to do domestically? What does this mean for 007 when it comes out later this year? And um, there are people that really believe that hey, the distribution market has has left theaters, and I don't think that's true. I just think that they're going where the viewers are, similar to how cable TV has chased its viewers to the OTT to to the. You know, the Apple TVs, Rokus, and Amazon Fire Sticks of the world. Yeah. Like, where are the viewers? At home. Right. So, they're just right. chasing them home. When they go back yeah. up to the theater, then the theaters will be back. Yeah. And
1: 300 million is great, man, for people who are at home. You know what I'm saying? We're still basically under a pandemic. Anytime you read something, they're like, you know, 100, what was it? One million people worldwide have died of COVID-19. And won't stop. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, thanks, appreciate that. That's awesome news. You know, it's that's exactly what I wanted to read this morning. Again, just I just want to get back to the film. Three hundred million, four weeks. It's doing in the pandemic. It's doing pretty darn well. I totally right? And agree. I'm not sure what these people were expecting. A billion you know, dollars. That's the yeah, well, why? Why now? You know, I mean, they should be happy that this thing breaks even in a pandemic, to be honest, right? Because you, you can do all the marketing and stuff that you want. People are still at home. Right. You know, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, you can flood them with the stuff. If they're not comfortable with leaving their houses, it doesn't matter how good your marketing is. So you are only going to hit the people who are ready to come out of their houses anyway. Like, that's the thing. It's like, I think they had to understand, uh, ho- hopefully they're understanding now that, it isn't these films that are drawing people out of their homes, right? Something else has to draw people out of their homes and then they're going to go potentially go see a movie. That's a Whereas wonderful the point. Is, yeah. A tenant is not drawing them out. Something else is. So anyway, I just look at it. I'm like, yeah, this is, you know, they made the money. But back to my point earlier though, about, you know, are the numbers padded or whatever? I think that there is a, potentially still some of that that's in there you know that's just like and, and if it's not doing well here maybe other countries are trying to get people back out there you know saying so, you know it's one of those where you say hey look how many people went to see the movie and there's been no covid outbreak
0: yeah it right? really right exactly and it, and it reminds me of you know this this sort of care about the domestic market and look I Obviously I want movie theaters to do well here in the U S but it reminds me of, of sort of the, the idea versus the reality. So the reality is, is that 60 plus percent of the global box office is outside of the U S right. But Mm -hmm. we, but, but the perception and the story we get told is that without the U S film market film just can't exist like it's just the machine isn't there um all the top executives all the experience all the studios are here and it reminds me of of the comparison between LA and let's say uh Toronto or or Georgia right where we can't imagine a world where Hollywood isn't the primary player in in filmmaking but they haven't been the primary player in filmmaking for like 5 years right you know most of these movies come out of Canada and they come out of Georgia so you know, the reality of it isn't as sexy as the story. Like nobody wants to hear about, you know, what you shot in Ontario or Toronto or whatever, uh, or Atlanta. They they want to hear the, that they did this all in Tinseltown. So th- that could be part of it too. And that's why you have to kind of pad the numbers maybe to, I guess, give the perception that the movie's going to be okay and that there's there's good faith. It's a good faith thing. Even if it's, you you know, you don't want to be caught being dishonest, I should say, but but it's like, if you're a theater, you want these numbers to be as high as possible. Like you're throwing in all the numbers you can possibly throw in to get that number high so that 007 doesn't pull out and other blockbusters don't pull out at the last minute and chase viewers to uh, the Apple TV or the Roku or the Amazon Fire Stick. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So, you know, if I wanted to
1: get people back to the theaters, you know, let's say in my local area and I had some money to spend, then I could just buy, you know, 300
0: tickets. Yep. Yep. Ex- exactly. I want to talk about a conversation we were having earlier today and expound upon that because I thought it'd be interesting for this audience to to hear. Who is more important? An agent or manager? And I think that the answer is a little bit more complex now than ever. And if you're in independent film, a way that you can level up, and we hear that term, level up, a way you can level up is to get an agent or get a manager or get both. And I think from my experience, and maybe yours as well, Nick, agents typically sort of look down their nose on managers. And I think the reason why is that you can probably throw a stone into a crowd and find a manager, or it feels that way. Or maybe you can go into a coffee shop where writers and creatives hang out and find a manager. I mean, it doesn't, it seems like the bar is lower to be one, whereas an agent has to follow rules and has to have certain certifications and work with unions. But I think all that is changing here, Nick, with a lot of it the layoffs that have happened at the big agencies and then this exodus to by agents to sort of usurp the new WGA <laughs> packaging rules. And now they're calling themselves managers. So, Hmm.
1: Yeah. I don't even know. Sometimes I get confused to be honest, you know, I'm like, okay, what's the difference? You know, what role are you playing as an agent versus the role of a manager? Do they sometimes overlap? Um, you know, we were talking about, um, Michael D King over there at macro, mm-hmm. and I think it was earlier this year in January, he started a, a management arm, or Charles D King, Yeah, Charles D King, mm-hmm. um, started a, a, um, a management arm of macro, you know? So I'm like, okay, <laughs> so how's that different from, you know, him representing folks as an agent, well, not him, it's his firm, but. Yeah, exactly. you know, It's sometimes I get confused about those lines. And I think, you know, what you're mentioning now is, you know, based on the way things are changing with packaging, maybe it's all getting more
0: blurred. Yeah. Maybe you know, the maybe percentage just is just the difference. Yeah, maybe just change your name from one to the next, you know, and we, that's just how you roll. <laughs> we got to get Terry Ritter and, and Cookie McCray on a phone call and, and let them just break it down for us and say, hey, this is what an agent does. This is what a manager does. Could they cross over? Maybe. Should they cross over? Maybe not. I don't know. We got to get to the bottom of this because now agents are just calling themselves managers and it allows them to usurp the WGA rules around packaging fees. And even you talked about Charles D. King. uh, He joined Philip's son to create M88. And they're going to be one of these new firms like Range Media and others that are basically there's like this rush to create these new firms that are changing the business models of how money gets distributed. Because in the past, you'd have an agent and an agency package a deal and then they could count on the, you know, if you had a hit TV show, let's say, Nick, you could count on the syndication revenue on the back end along with other types of back end revenue. If you had a hit show, and then that would sort of line the pockets of the agency and uh, the creative alike. But now <laughs> that, that Comcast has 19.5 million subscribers, and let's say um, Roku has 44 million, well, the game has kind of changed, and and now that. You know, you can't have packaging deals that, that allow you to get – and fees that allow you to get paid up front the way you want to get paid and, and paid uh, just over the term of, of the deal the way you want to get paid and, and put all these entities together on your own. Now it's like, well, let me change my name to a manager, and then I will – instead of package you, I will produce <laughs> – will pro- see, see, the name changes, right? See, right. before I was packaging, and now as a manager, I'm producing – your content. And then on the back end, instead of me getting a packaging fee, we just split the long term revenue with the creative. And so that back end model, we have no idea if that's going to work or not. But on the short term, it's like a new home for all these agents. And there's a lot of investors hoping it's going to work, and no one knows yet. Yeah, and it's funny because I'm, you know, looking at an article from uh,
1: Variety, and it's like it says Hollywood new leaders, agents and managers. Okay, this was from 2017. Mm-hmm. So I start to go through the list of these folks, and not one of them is listed as a manager. Right? It says their name, <laughs> right? And then it says their title. It all says agent. Yeah. So that's what, I'm, that's what I'm saying. That's why I get confused about this stuff. You know, like which is which and which one do you need and which one do, don't you? And and maybe it is just a matter of, you know, if you took X percent before, you were an agent. Yeah. Right? Now that that is out of vogue, right, you are no longer taking that and therefore you're a manager. So right. you can do the same thing. You're just not going to get that same amount of money. That's all.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to think like you – know, so if we had to ask the question – and answer it for indie creatives. Do you want a manager? or Do you want an agent? I guess the answer still is you want an agent, even if their title is manager. <laughs> 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 I think, yeah. I think that's the answer because it feels like there's, there's certain guidelines. Like when you're a manager, you can just be speculative, right? Like when I was in, you know, the music business, you had a manager and the, what the manager's job was was to try to get you signed at Sony or wherever, and you know Warner Music, whatever it was, Universal, and then they would take a finder's fee of about twenty percent of your of your upfront finder's fee, and then they would literally either be told by the label to go find another act that they're going to take over management of the artist, or you'd stay with the artist to continue to reap the benefits of managing that artist. Um, and it's just standard business in 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 the music industry, and that's how it worked. But that's why I don't know if it works the same in in film where, you know, you, you could be a manager. You could just wake up tomorrow morning and say, I think I'm going to manage musical acts. And then you find an act that you like by going to a bunch of live shows. You have a great sales pitch and then you work your ass off to help them do demos and do shows and gain an audience. And then you walk them into a label and say, here's my, you know, here's my group. And you've already got a contract with the act. And so it's all solidified. But I don't know if that's how, I don't know if you can roll out of bed and say, you know what, I'm going to be an agent. I don't think it works that way. I think you actually have to have some uh, credentials. I think yeah, that's the difference. I think
1: that, yeah. And I think, you know, we, we should kind of, we should definitely continue the conversations with, you know, as, as many agents and maybe even managers as possible to find out, you know, the value proposition that they offer to, you know, the creative, uh, the creatives out there. Uh, because, you know, I, I'm actually curious sometimes about, you know, how many of our indie creatives out there have either, yeah, right, an, an agent or a manager. Or are they doing this on their own? You know, what what's the landscape look like out there?
0: Well, that's you kind know, of and my point, Do they point, find though, they need it or what? That's kind of my point though. Like, it's like, I feel like if you're an indie creative and look, this, this sounds like I'm disparaging managers. I'm not disparaging managers. I think there's a lot of great managers out there. I think there's a lot of managers out there that are kind of on the take, just to be honest, uh, that, that aren't great managers, but, and you could say the same thing for agents potentially, but I guess what I'm saying is, is I think if you're an indie filmmaker or creative, you can go get a manager, There's no big deal. Like you can go get one. Like you can just ask your, Hey, will you manage me? just ask your friend, Hey, can you manage me? Whereas an agent has to believe in your talent and then sign you as part of their roster. I think that's the big gap. So it's like, if you're, if you're creative and you don't have an agent, it's probably because you can't get one or you haven't tried to get one. But if you haven't got a manager is my point is that you probably like, okay, why do I need one of those? That's a little, right. it's yeah, nuance, but, but it's it, a, it's a yeah. difference, you know? Yeah. I'm just curious
1: though. You know, that's, I think that's just a, a question and, you know, everybody can always hit us up at a uh, contact at bonsai.film, but Hey, you know, are you an independent filmmaker and do you have an agent?
0: Yeah. You know, have to know are the you, percentages. Yeah.
1: Are you out there trying to get this work yourself? Are you trying to hustle into the next job? Are you leveraging, you know, the, the connections of an agent, I just, I want to know, you know, I'm very curious because, you know, the, you know, I, again, we don't know what the splits are and all that kind of stuff, but I think sometimes in the indie world, you know, folks will avoid something like that for fear of what it might cost. Yeah. Right. Like they're, they might think that there's an upfront cost just to get involved and maybe there's not, maybe all that stuff actually comes, you know, through, you know, through the representation, you get a gig, then the agent gets a portion of that, but upfront, you know. There's nothing to pay out of pocket. If that's the case, then, hey, maybe you should be running to an agent. But I'm just curious, you know, like, again, as an indie filmmaker, I'm not sure that everyone thinks about the structures of things, Mm. right, and how important those relationships are, right? Not just friends, but, like, no, a relationship that an agent has because it's their business to have it. Exactly. Right? Not just some networking event you went to and you're hoping to get a gig or you know you hired you got a, an actor to come on who happens to have an agent. So you want to talk, you know, it's like, no, are you taking this seriously and taking that next step to get the contacts and the connections that you need to do the next thing you want to do. So, just kind of curious, you know. So yeah, if you're listening to this, hey, hit us up, contact at bonsai.film and let us know if you have an agent. You know, let us know if you do don't have an agent, let us know which agency that you're using. And maybe we can get those folks on the podcast to talk about it. But I'm just curious, like I said, you
0: know, what's it look like out there? Yeah, exactly. Another conversation we were having that I wanted to touch on, uh, as we, this is, this is like the moment where we take our actual lives and work that we do every day and like bring it to the microphone and just like say, Hey, Hey, Let's not talk about it too much here. Let's let's leave this on the conversation for the podcast. But this idea that you've had in your head for a while, Nick, which is what is an indie film? Because I think as we do research on the industry every day, and we prepare for even these kind of conversations and the conversations we have with our guests. We might go to a place like IndieWire and say... Well, why do they call themselves IndieWire? Is <laughs> this like one of these bills that come out of Washington that has a name and then it does the exact opposite of the name? <laughs> it's like, why is it called IndieWire, and then what is an indie film, and how do we define it? Um, what are your What are your thoughts on that? Catch the audience up with with your mindset here, Nick.
1: Yeah, it's just you know always with an eye towards you know what's the next thing that we can do. For the filmmaker, the indie filmmaker, what resources are out there, what benchmarks exist for them. And, you know, I just was doing some research, like you mentioned, you know, looked at IndieWire, right? It just it has it in its name. And then I go to the, you know, their site and it's all the blockbuster Hollywood talk. Right. Like, I don't remember even seeing any article that specifically said independent film. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, if this isn't a resource for them, then what are the resources for them? And then you know, I go out to Netflix, and you know, you can get lost in the sea of content that's out there, and you know, it's it, it's hard to find, you know, what one would consider, what we would consider, independent content. Um, so you start, I start just going through there, right? Like, okay, let's let's see what I can find that has an N on it, that doesn't appear to have like a superstar on the front cover. Right. right on the cover art. So I started going through that stuff. I was like, oh, okay, here's one. And I click on it. And I'm like, okay, well who wrote it? Right. That's the key for me. It's like, you know, who wrote this thing? How did it get there in the first place? And, you know, you, you kind of get an education into content creators that are out there and how Netflix is leveraging their communities on their platform. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I found one, um who does I think she's done two films. Her name is Alice Wu, and she has a film called The Half of It on Netflix. and uh, she's only had two movies. The mm-hmm. last one was in 2005. I think she'd written it back in 1990 you know that uh, she started it in 1990. That sounds like a classic film story to me. Yeah, started I mean she she worked for Microsoft, decided that she wanted to write. Decided to take screenwriting courses, Um, people she was working with at Microsoft was like, you're so good at this, you should just leave this place and go do that, pursue your dreams, which she did. Gave herself like a five-year plan. I think at the end of five years, I think she'd won a screenwriting competition for this uh, film, Saving Face, and then it was released in 2005. And I just looked at, okay, you know, why did that do so well? 2005 is a different a different time than it is now, but you know I look at you know why did that specific film do well and why was she called upon you know nearly 15 years later, right to have them to write another film and have this thing be on Netflix right I mean, it's it's a 15 year gap right so I just I read a, a statement about this film that she said and she said um, she has said that she would like the audience to come away from it with this feeling that no matter who they are whether they are gay or straight or whatever their cultural makeup is, that if there is something that they secretly wanted, whether it's this feeling that they could actually have that great love or whatever it is, that it's never too late to have that. I want them to leave the theater feeling a sense of hope and possibility. Like that, when you think about that kind of that line, right? That, that yeah. statement about a film and a product, it's not like, Oh, what do you want people to take away from it? Oh, it's a really cool love story between John and Jane. And, you know, I want everyone <laughs> to know love. You know, it's like, it's not generic, you know? Yeah, it's a heck uh, of a why. Yeah, exactly. And she wrote Saving Face basically to talk about her own struggles with her sexual identity, hmm. right? And how she came out as a lesbian, right, to her parents. And, you know, she's a Taiwanese American. So here we go, right? We got a Taiwanese American. Who's writing a story about coming out as a lesbian? Right. Right. And you the story, fit, and the story specific... fits the zeitgeist
0: a lot better now than it did then.
1: Right. But you, you what you're seeing here is it's a very specific story in a very specific community that speaks to her journey. Mm-hmm. But it's just not it's not a love story about da-da-da-da-da. Like it's just not just that. You know, what is this thing? So it's huge. It was, you know, it won several awards. You know, in that community, it won awards outside of that community because, you know, one, it was a great story, but two, very specific niche audience. Um, so I did the same thing and kind of did some digging in some other films, found another film that uh, was actually optioned from a book. Right. So you have this, you know, best-selling author who does these romance and, and you know, teen romance books, optioned the film, optioned the story. And then now it's a film on Netflix. Another one is a playwright. And this playwright has like a laundry list of accolades. Like it's crazy when you see this, like all the stuff this person has done. Right. And then that's the writer on this other movie that's on Netflix. So you're saying that these things are making it, they're getting some, you know, some decent people in them as well. And how are they getting these people? I mean, there's again, you wouldn't know anything about these movies if I didn't point them to you, right? Mm-hmm. But how did they get on Netflix? How did, you know, they get paid for? Well, it's because these individuals do have a following, mm-hmm. right? So outside of film, they have a following. So if we can translate their following into film, then that's what Netflix is doing. Yeah. Right? So again, so I look at this, I'm like, okay, what the heck? Okay, so how do I find, what what is indie film? Like, are there any... 150, 250,000, $300,000 films that were made by nobody that are showing up on Netflix or available, you know, on Amazon, not Amazon Prime, right? Not for free, but like that you have to buy and they, they don't exist. So when we talk about this independent film and independent creative, I think about just like, what are the other avenues that independent creatives can take to build an audience, to build a following And then bring that to a Netflix or then bring that to Amazon or Hulu or Comcast, right? How do they build that and then take it there, take your audience to whatever that distributor is. And I feel like, I mean, we've probably said this, you know, a thousand times before, especially about building your brand and, you know, building an audience, but I feel like it's just more and more necessary to find that opportunity to find that thing where you're just creating and you're building an audience and you have to do it in the most natural organic way where it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a piece of who you are, right? Like don't try to make something because you think it'll sell, but you have to be it. You have to live it, you know? And through living it, that's, you you do that every day, right? It's just something that you just do and you do it all the time and you have to do it and you have to continue to make this stuff. The audience will come and then that's what people want to buy, right? Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or Comcast or Peacock or whoever doesn't necessarily want to buy your story. They want to buy your audience. So what audience are you bringing to them? And I think that just kind of leads us to, you know, some other stuff that you had found um, out there as well. But but what do you think
0: about that? I think it's a great point. I think it's exactly, you know, on the on the nose. It, it, it creates this... Dichotomy, though it creates this sort of um, polar uh, problem you know uh, how do i develop an audience if i cannot get into these platforms where an audience can see my work and then how do i get on here to this platform where people can see my work if i don't have an audience and so it gets complicated in terms of how you uh, can build your audience. And I think we have some suggestions that exist out there that might be outside the box you know, right now based on the way the industry is moving. But before we get to that, I, I just wanted to go over the streaming titles because you're talking about indie film and Netflix and finding these movies. But I still go back to this idea that maybe... If you think about a feature film and why it's ninety minutes long or why it's hundred and twenty minutes long or even longer, that was for and designed for a different different era, kind of like how in music and we're bringing up music again, but you know everyone knows that or for the most part people that love music know that songs that came out in the fifties and sixties were about two minutes long. you know it wasn't that long, and that was designed to be based on how radio worked back then. And then songs started getting longer, four minutes long, five minutes long as a radio song. Um, and then as, as albums started coming out and, and before those songs were much shorter, why? Because they were selling them on these 45s, right? And these little, these tiny records and they, you couldn't fit, you know, three songs on there if they were all going to be five minutes long. So you had to make the song shorter. And yeah. so for the same reason we have, we have, Movies that are two hours long, more based on the way people were spending their time. You know, it was a night out. So you needed to fill up the gap of the evening so that when you came back, you could go to sleep. And that was the night. You spent the night at the theater. Now we have a whole different world where people want short, quick bites of entertainment. They want to go through the different streaming channels and, and have a variety of entertainment resources and options. And there's, I think you're going to start seeing feature films or this idea of a feature film that's going to be an hour and 15 minutes long. And that's going to be the new spec script. It's like, tell me a whole story, in an hour and 15 minutes tops, because they want to compete with shows. And if you look at the rankings in August across streamers, the number one show across all streamers was the Umbrella Academy. 20% of the audience watched a show. And there are movies in there like Project Power that had Jamie Foxx in it. And you have Hamilton coming in third, which is a play, not really a movie. So it's like a phenomenon. And then you see shows like The Office, like Staying Steady. Uh, And Netflix is going to enjoy that until January. And then you have The World's Toughest Race on uh, Amazon, for example, or World's Most Wanted on Netflix. And you have... Flora's lava and just like <laughs> all these all these shows. Yeah, uh the show Hannah on on Amazon is huge. And it and it was I think the fourth watch show on all of streaming in July. Mm. So when you look at that, you say, okay, the world likes shows. They want to keep going. They want to keep following these characters. And I think that's what we're going to see. We're going to see you know, we're used to growing up and seeing the book, then the movie. I think going forward, we're going to see the movie, then the book, then the series based on the book and the movie, and then the graphic novel based on that, those three things, and then the toys and et cetera. And the, the same kind of proliferation and exploitation of a, of not a movie, but of a property of, of yeah, intellectual that's, yeah, property.
1: That's it. And that's where I've always been. I'm like, especially for indie filmmakers, you know um, it's gotta be about a property, but I think for indie filmmakers, sometimes it's more difficult to think about it that way. think about it in that broad sense. Mm -hmm. And here's why I think the case is, is that even though they might believe in their story, as in like, oh, this is going to, you know, it's so nuanced and cool and innovative and I'm doing all these things, they're actually not really passionate about the content. Mm. Interesting, right? So, like, yeah. Go, so, what, go what, what on that a little like, bit. Yes, yeah, so what I mean is, like, if you're passionate, let's say you you make a, let's say it's a horror film. You make a horror film because you think, you know, horror films will sell because every, you know, the horror uh, audience out there is just they're eager. Like, they'll eat up everything that you make. You know, if it's a horror film, they're gonna watch. it. If it sucks, it doesn't matter. They'll just tell everybody it sucks because that's what they do. They're like aficionados out there, right? They'll just devour this content. Um, and then you'll put a movie out there and that'll be it because your point was to try to make some money. Your point was try to hit a genre that, you know, generally does well because there's so many, you know, Yeah, and helps uh, you build an audience. Exactly. But so, but that's, that's where you that's where you end or you do something that is, you try to do something that's super novel. You come up with some, you know, some way to tell your story that has never been done before. It breaks every rule and it fails because it breaks every rule. But you think it's the coolest thing because it breaks every rule and no one's done it like this before. But you're not, you did, you did it because you're excited about breaking rules, not because of the story, right? Or what it means to you. So again, you did the horror thing because you thought it could sell. You did the breaking rules thing because you thought it was unique and novel and would get you a deal, but you weren't passionate about it. When someone writes a, a story about, you know, uh, their sister having cancer, right, and and what they went through for four years to help her overcome it, and and how it broke their family apart and their parents got a divorce and they lived through that. They're going to write, they're going to do behind the scenes stuff. They're going to write, you know, blog posts about cancer. They're going to connect with a cancer foundation and talk to them about what they're doing. And they may even, you know, for the opportunity to, uh, you know, donate some of their proceeds, they'll, they'll open up that conversation with them. Like, they'll do everything around that subject. Right, mm-hmm. So all of that ancillary product, all of those other opportunities, they live with this because they're impassioned by it. And I think that, to me, is one of the failings of a lot of the folks in the indie film industries. Or the, trying to find the next film that's going to get them on the map when they don't realize that it's actually the audience who's going to get you there. So if you made something that you you live with that audience, right? you live that experience, you write about that experience, other people can share in that experience those people are going to go with you. Like they're going to support you because you're doing something that's greater than yourself. Yeah. And that opens those opportunities because you you can't help but think about everything else you can do. You can't help but think about how impactful, you know, a t-shirt would be right. That you can sell that talks about this story, right? Because you want it out there. And I think that's the difference. It's like, it's hard to come up with all those ancillary products
0: when you're not invested in the story. Right. You're more invested in the product. Well, I think that the pushback on that would be, well, everybody needs a comedy. Everyone needs a, a rom-com here and there, especially on a streaming platform. Um, everybody needs, you know, how how invested is, is, you know, are you in the content of, of Palm Springs on Hulu, for example, which is w- wildly popular. But I think we have to make a delineation because there's nothing wrong with that. What we're saying is, is, when you're a writer for hire and or you're writing and, and you know that you have uh, the connections to have sort of a go script and you have an understood talent and people are investing in you and and you're putting out content, you're going to get cast to support that. And that's what's going to bring the audience. But when you're an indie, you really want to be invested in IP and have some sort of skin in the game on uh, on at the project level, on a broader level, not just the screenplay or the story of that one film, but but what you're going to do with the IP in general, because you won't have the luxury of the investors waiting in the wing, and you won't have the luxury of cast, most likely, and so you have to play a different game. And I think that's just to clear it up, Nick, to make yeah. sure you know
1: exactly. And that's the thing is that you know you said it right. That's for the indie, and that's who I'm having this conversation with, right? It's like the indies have to do something bigger it has to be beyond them because the the other thing is this is that even if the the film itself isn't your best work that audience knowing that you gave your heart to that cause that experience that feeling that sentiment like they're they're going to be there with you to help you do the next one yeah right but if you're just trying to do the product right the film that one thing and try to push it. If that thing fails, what do you have to fall back on? Yeah. You, right. You got. You got nothing. It's a, so I it's think a, that's. Yeah, that's where the indie
0: filmmaker has to go. I love it, man. It's a. It's a great point, and we talked a little bit about where do you go, and and I know that the question sometimes comes up with our listeners of, hey, you guys talk about a lot of the macros, sort of machinations and movements within Hollywood. But like we've said before, I think the reason why we talk about the larger film industry that's sort of, you know, outside of the realm of most indie creatives is because it's important to know where distribution streams are going and who owns what and where the equity is going so that you know where to put your film and how it will affect you. And some of the, uh, this next um, segment here of our conversation, it really touches on that because if you're paying attention to what's happening with uh, over the top, Boxes like Apple TVs and Roku's and and Firesticks. What they've done is they've taken this hardware business that they have and they've really transformed it into a software business or a software as a service business or you know where where they. Um, are able to charge almost a tax or a fee on every streamer that comes in and and wants to be on their platform. And I think the perception from the viewer is, is that, oh, every one of these um, OTT boxes are going to have an app store and I'm going to be able to download the apps I want and watch the content I want but really, it's up to those manufacturers to decide and those organizations to decide which applications they let on and which ones they don't. And so what you're seeing right now is is the new gatekeepers. And the new gatekeepers are Roku and Apple TV and Amazon and Google. And whoever else jumps in that game and will end up with leverage, they, they are the new gatekeepers. Before it used to be uh, the studios, before it used to be It used to be cable TV, but no longer. Uh, Roku has 43 million users, 44 million users. They make about $25 per subscriber. So that's a billion-dollar business. They have an $18 billion market cap. Amazon's got a $1.6 trillion market cap. So you're talking about true leverage and what they do is they charge, you know, 20% on, on subscriber fees and 30% on the ad revenue on the free stuff that like streamers give away. If it's a like, you know, how Hulu has a free version of their service. So that's what these, these, um, these organizations are taking off the top. And they would say, hey, that's a very fair deal, <laughs> right? Yep. But, but if you're paying attention to that as a, so as an indie creator, so you, so you might say, well, how does that affect me as an indie? Well, go and look who they're taking that market share from. So if you're an indie filmmaker and you're having a hard time finding a Distributor or someone to buy your film. Why not take your lawyers and your agent or manager, if you have that, and walk that right into a, a Comcast or Viacom, who would, who right now needs that content and and is no longer the gatekeeper they once were. You probably can strike a deal with them, and there are a list of other organizations that, in the short term, have been uh, weakened, but in the long term, will probably have to find their strength somewhere else or will, or will die off. So there's this small window, maybe between now and the next two or three years, where you can walk up to an organization and pitch to an organization that before would be a major gatekeeper and would shut you down and you wouldn't have access to, you will now have access to them. So that's certainly something I would I would think about. And that just comes from following the movement and trends of, of this industry, Nick. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's crazy. There's like, um, and almost an ebb and flow, right?
1: There's a shifting all the time. And I think, you know, the times that we're in right now have forced a, a testing and a, of, of the environment, like what works, what doesn't people who find out what works, capitalize double down on that. Uh, some people aren't agile enough to shift into that and into a new business or into a new market. So yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of changing going on. I think that even Roku, you know, there's probably uh, tons of opportunities there because, you know, you can basically create your own Roku channel,
0: mm-hmm. right? Exactly. So, so,
1: you know, you could stream your own stuff potentially on Roku
0: and, and charge people to watch it there. That's the fifth wave we talk about is where everybody has their own channel. Everybody has their own distribution wing. Each individual can have one and each individual will have one. And in a way we already have that because you have your own Instagram account, you have your own Twitter account, you have your own Snapchat, you have your own TikTok, et cetera. And it's your job to promote that channel and whatever content you push through it. But now you'll be able to do that in a major way. Uh, through these uh, set top boxes, like like a Roku. And by the way, if you're an indie distributor, time to get with it as well and find uh, uh, these new avenues by which to sell your your films to. But how many subscribers do they have? Closing in on forty four million. And, <laughs> That's a lot uh, of people with Roku,
1: right? So. Yeah. I think as people start to realize that there's these other opportunities, these other avenues for them to distribute their stuff, and like I said, you have the potential to create your own channel, right? So imagine the same thing in a Netflix world, right? So many subscribers to Netflix, but hey, look, I can create my own channel on Netflix. Wow, that would be great because everybody has Netflix. Well, everybody has Roku, right? You know, right. so like. Go with that same model, that same mindset. And if you can get it on Roku, either on an existing channel, there's tons of channels. So that would be like you just said, you know, get it in front of uh, Comcast. Well, there's a ton of channels on Roku. You know, what if you could sell to one of those people who has their own channel, right? Get it on there and do some profit sharing with them. You know, maybe you should look into creating your own channel. If you're going to create content, right? You can't have a channel that's got your one feature film on it.
0: Yeah, well, you, that's true. You can, but you probably right. should. And then right. you go out and find other feature films to get on your channel. Or you know, there's it's it's going to be fascinating to see how people take advantage of this stuff. And it's easy to to talk about Netflix, and we talk about it a lot because it's the it's unusual how successful they were and how lucky they got to actually beat blockbuster, which happened due to blockbusters arrogance. And there's a lot of great business stories that you can, uh, and, and, literature out there, you can read about how that all went down. Blockbuster actually had a perfect opportunity to buy Netflix and they were like, nah, we're good. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and they just couldn't see their writing on the wall. But what's really interesting is you talk about Roku And all these companies that started around the same time. When Roku started, Nick, they only played Netflix. That's the only app they had. And now you look at them and they are about to hit a tipping point that's going to give them leverage forever, it feels like. And you look at other companies like Wattpad. Wattpad started in 2007, 2008-ish. And it was just this little social platform for writers. And now it has 80 million users. So these are the companies that all started around the same time. YouTube's in there too. They all started around the same time and just called on early. And now they've grown to... These massive heights and YouTube itself is just such a phenomenon, by the way, and we don't talk about it enough. Well, that's for another episode, but you think about Wattpad, which people, I'd say a lot of people aren't even consciously aware exists, but it has 80 million users globally. They just started Wattpad Studios. They will sell your book if you write a book and the coolest thing about it. So this is how I think any filmmakers can get an edge here. If you're are indie writers, if you're an indie writer and you want feedback, you don't have to go to coverage anymore. I don't know if there's value in it to pay somebody to cover your film or your, I mean your screenplay. You still want those three or four people you trust that have good taste and know how you work and know how you write and give you feedback. Keep those. But I would say go on Wattpad and write either in screenplay format or write your screenplay out like a novel, like a novel rather. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice went away right there. It was weird. Uh, <laughs> I was like uh, one of the Brady kids. Uh, <laughs> so so yeah, you can write it out as a novel and have an audience there of readers who can tell you what your next plot point would they would like to see, because you could just flat out ask them, do you think Johnny should do this or Johnny should do that? And you can choose whatever you want. But at least you'll have a, an active poll of people that say, we want Johnny to do this in the next in the story. And here's what's amazing. So even if Wattpad doesn't end up making your story into a movie on Wattpad Studios or whatever else, or you can't turn it into a book and sell it through their through their book service, the audience that lives on Wattpad will follow your story as you make it into a film. So we've talked about building audiences and I promised you, I would tell you this is sort of, how do you build an audience if you can't get on one of these platforms? Cause they're not buying stuff from, you know, our beloved indie filmmakers. This is a cool way to do it. So you tell your story on Wattpad, build a massive audience around it, and then you can make a movie out of it. And that audience will follow you wherever that movie goes.
1: Yeah. And that's what we're saying is that there's tons of other ways, you know, to build a following. And, you know, I think that there's you know, for the for the indie filmmaker, there's just a, a truth that you almost have to tell yourself. And that's that there's some period of time that you have to spend, you know, let's let's call it a five year plan, right? Five years before you can get to do the thing that you want to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it takes five years for you to build the relationships. It helps. It takes five years for you to hone your craft. It takes five years for you to turn, um, for you to actually get lucky. Right. And when I say lucky, it's like you were in the right place at the right time. Yeah. But the five years is relationships, choices, you know, lessons learned, all of these things converging into a moment of luck. But it takes time. Right. It doesn't it doesn't just happen because you thought you made something cool or unique or innovative that one time. Right. It's five years worth of work. And I think that's what it is. It's like this, you know, even Wattpad, you know, you're not necessarily going to just jump on there tomorrow and they get your you know, story optioned. Mm-hmm. But you got to put in the time and the effort and say, yeah, I'm going to build this thing and do it for the next five years.
0: That's right. You go back to our Rashina Nash episode from this summer. She talks about her five-year plan that she wrote down, doing things that she needed to do to make sure she reached her goal as a single mother and a, and a creative. Very inspiring. Uh, I love that conversation. Uh, I hope everyone out there that goes and listens to it will enjoy it and love it too. Uh, but it's a it's a great point, Nick. And um, uh, speaking of of great, uh, this was a great conversation. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, man. Always, dude. You know, and we're always trying to find these ways for the indie creative to come out on top, right? It's like there's there's so much of this Hollywood content that's flooding right now and I feel like the the indie stuff is is almost hidden. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm just, I'm, I'm happy to continue to do this. And I'm, I'm really excited to basically learn more about what's happening in the industry so that we can help our creatives and, you know, introduce them to things like Wattpad and, and, and having their own Roku channels, or even, you know, calling someone who has a Roku channel and saying, Hey, i like the stuff that you're doing on there. My content really would fit with what you're doing. And then talk about what that distribution
0: model would look like. Absolutely. Speaking of helping our indie creatives out there, We are trying our best to help, and here's a couple of things. We have our film investment series for those who are looking to be private equity investors uh, in independent film. Those come out every Sunday. We also have our mistakes in the making. So if you have a mistake you've made as a creative and you want to share it with us, please do send us a five-minute, can be as long as 15 minutes, but as short as five minutes uh, audio file. Uh, Just about any kind of file type will work. We'll convert it. Send that to contact at bonsai.film and we would love to post your mistake in the making. This would be some mistake you've made in your career that actually taught you a lesson that helped you become better. Uh, And we want to put these out so filmmakers that hear this can hear that maybe and skip that mistake and and, and leapfrog that mistake and have a a clearer path to success. Um, As mentioned, if you have questions concerns, feedback, please email us at the same address, contact at bonsai.film. We'll get right back to you there. We're also on social media, on Instagram and on Twitter at underscore bonsai creative. Uh, You can find us on Facebook by searching for bonsai creative. Uh, You can reach out to me directly on Twitter at flame in your heart. That's at flame in your heart. And your is spelled U-R. So F-L-A-M-E-U-R-I-N-E. H e a r t, and you can find Nick on Twitter at Nicholas Bugs. Much simpler. <laughs> so, <laughs> so kudos to you for yeah, uh, for picking that up. Maybe one maybe one day I'll I'll switch it up. We'll we'll see. You can also find out more about us at www.bonsaifilm. There you'll find tons of resources, links to other podcast episodes, and. Um, a blog full of posts that are designed to help you take that next step forward as a indie creative. You can also talk to us about advisory producing and other subjects there as well. Nick, you have any final words for this lovely audience? Yeah, man. As always be better, be creative, be engaged and thank you for listening. Nick, I'll talk to you soon. Yes, sir. You take it easy, man. You too, brother. Get some rest. I will do my best after your myofascial release. There you go, fascial man. I don't like this fascial. Myofascial release. There you go. Myofascial. All right, (laughs) release. All right, man. You take it easy. (laughs) Peace. Later's later. You've been listening to the Make It podcast. To find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Banzai Creative and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Banzai Creative and Facebook by searching for Banzai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, Go to www.banzai.film and click on book us to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain until next time. Be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.